the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly view on the story shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. It's been a busy week here at Lloyd's List Towers, where we've been looking at the recent slew of global economic data. The IMF may have downgraded its GDP forecast, but happily the headline numbers coming out of Asia this week continue to show some semblance of business as usual, with little indication of any real impact from the escalating trade tensions with US and China. In terms of shipping, it seems that the markets are continuing to look forward. Clarkson's six-monthly report showed us that bulkers and box ships have made further gains this year, with earnings up 25% and 38% respectively from last year. And OK, so tankers are down 29%, but let's look at the bigger picture. Seaborne trade is projected to rise 3.1% this year to 12 billion tonnes. Now, wildcards obviously remain, and it's almost impossible to have a conversation in shipping at the moment without mention of 2020. And if anyone's still suffering under the delusion that this is somehow a question for next year, think again. With oil prices increasing, the shipping industry is going to need to deal with increasingly volatile fuel prices well before the low sulfur rules kick in. Now, putting all this into context is a uh, tricky business, but I'm delighted to say that uh, this week we've found just the man for the job in the form of Mark Williams, former head of research at Affinity Shipbrokers and now head of his own consultancy business, Shipping Strategy. I caught up with him in our London office this week, where we talked trade tariffs, Chinese stimulus packages, and why 2020 is basically a question of ordering decaf coffee. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Richard. Delighted to be here. Our remit is uh, going behind the stories shaping shipping. Um, So what's the big thematic trends you think is shaping the shipping market as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think the top two probably are uh, trade tariffs and the rise of trade clubs versus multilateral trade agreements or global trade agreements. And the second thing, obviously, that's keeping everyone awake is IMO 2020 fuel rigs. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Well, let's just start with the uh, the trade tariffs. We've uh, obviously seen what's been happening um, in terms of the uh, tit-for-tat rhetorical war between the US and China. But as far as we can tell, it's not actually translated you know, massively in terms of uh, trade lane uh, volumes. You've seen a sort of a few spikes as people try and get in under the wire and then um, you know decline the next month. But overall, it's not actually affecting the markets that much yet. We're not seeing a big effect on the markets just yet. Um, And in fact, it might be that disruption is supportive of the freight markets over time. Mm. Um, So the big news this week on the trade tariffs is the new agreement between um, United States, Mexico and Canada to replace NAFTA with the USMCA. And um, the poison pill in that that says that Canada and Mexico have to inform the US if they should start negotiating on trade with a non-marked economy, Mm. which the clear implication of this is is if you're talking to China behind our back, you're in trouble. Uh, So you have to, you you can trade with the United States or you can trade with China, but you can't trade with both is is going to be the way forward. Um, And then at the same time, you have um, Prime Minister Abe from Japan. Uh, who's invited the United Kingdom post-Brexit to join the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, of course, uh, includes 12 nations, but it specifically excludes China. So it's a little bit like the 19th century great game between the great powers being played out in the Western Pacific at this point, because China is starting to feel a little bit encircled. Mm -hmm. So China's done two uh, really quite interesting things this week. The first is uh, that it's announced a 1.4 trillion yuan injection of new credit into uh, the Chinese domestic economy, including 0.4 trillion, so that's 400 billion yuan of housing credits to be released by local governments, uh, and about 700 billion yuan of um, 
of credits which are due to be repaid by the 15th of October, um, the central bank will now repay them on behalf uh, of companies and corporates. Mm. Uh, so that just sort of pushes the kicks the can down the road um, for corporate debtors, and it will drive further construction in the Chinese market, which, as we've known for the last fifteen years, drives dry cargo demand. Yeah, and the last time we saw China, uh, you know, playing the the stimulus package game, it definitely did have an impact. I mean, this is probably mild in comparison to, to recent examples of Chinese stimulus packages, but welcome nonetheless, I guess, for the dry bulk sector, and I guess longer term, you know, containers probably should benefit next year. I think it is likely that containers will benefit in the, in the short term because there'll be more Chinese manufacturing export. But the, the Chinese have been very keen in their announcements since their government has come back from Golden Week to downplay the proportion that exports mm. have of GDP and the global trade has as Chinese GDP. So they say that um, uh, fixed asset investment is now only growing at 5% a year, which is people investing in factories mostly for export. Yeah. Um, and that used to be the driver of the, of the Chinese economic miracle, um, whereas uh, consumer spending is now growing at over 14% a year. So they're really trying to push the domestic angle that we don't need to rely on, on trade mm. with overseas partners as much as we used to. And they're saying that the, the tariff-affected trade of the United States amounts to less than 2% of Chinese GDP. So they say we can survive this and we don't need America. In the same way that America is saying, actually, we don't need China, we don't need Europe, we don't need it, supranational institutions. So we're sort of getting the rise of these little club deals. And the other thing China has done, announced this week, is that it has finished the four-lane highway um, from Yanyungang on the Chinese Pacific coast all the way to St. Petersburg. Uh, so you can now uh, drive with your cargo um, from the Chinese export terminals uh, near Shanghai, all the way to St. Petersburg, in a quarter of the time it would take to ship uh, one TEU on that box. And the Chinese say they've actually sent 17 million tonnes um, of cargo down that route in the first uh, six months of this year. Uh, I worked out that that amounts to, at 14 tonnes per TEU, that amounts to between 65 and 70 fully laden Super Post Panamax container ships. Wow. So if you're wondering where the container shipping demand growth has gone, it's gone by road. Um, wow. Okay. All right. That is, I mean, that is pretty significant. In the, it's it's uh, big and, and growing, I guess. And this is growing. And now that the Russians have built LNG refueling facilities for road freight as part of the European Blue Corridors, which start from Felixstowe in the UK, Valencia in Spain, they go all the way down to Madrid in Italy, and they come up through Germany and, and into St. Petersburg. Mm. Uh, there's an opportunity for the Chinese to LNG road freight all the way across the Eurasian continent. Well, I mean, that's uh, something to look forward to, I guess, for the um, shipping volumes. Um, but, um, okay, but I mean, in terms of the, uh, the, the wider context here, I mean, you know, the, a lot of this is political rhetoric. A lot of this is um, you know, gesture politics, I guess, at the top level. Once it gets down to the nitty-gritty, do you think ultimately it's going to affect much in terms of trade volumes? I mean, you know, we've seen the IMF downgrade their, their GDP forecast at the top level, but that's effectively been priced into the market for a while. Everybody saw that coming. Yeah, we used to use global GDP as the key leading indicator for shipping demand. Most people have been able to see that for many years. If you look at the annual change in GDP, it used to give you the annual change, for instance, in VLCC one-year time charter rates. Yeah. It's a great leading indicator. That's kind of broken down now. Mm. 
And what you have to do now is look at global, uh, not the global growth rates, but the emerging markets growth rates, because that's where most of the demand for raw materials comes from. Mm. And that gives you the demand for, for, for bulk shipping, whether liquid or dry. Uh, whereas the container shipping demand really relies much more on the, the OECD nations, and mm. it's Western Europe and the United States, and, and those headhaul trades, Trans-Pacific and Asia-Europe. So you kind of have to split the picture out these days. Uh, and what we're seeing is the rise of these trade clubs is probably going to adjust the trade lanes, mm. um, but not necessarily dampen the overall yeah. demand. So more of a realignment of trade lanes rather than a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a necessary... A shift in the actual volume, so I guess increasing intra Asia, um, you know, probably some shifting out of China into Southeast Asia and going elsewhere, maybe continuation of the growth of intra Europe, even. But yeah, I uh, think you know, for instance, European short haul TEU volumes have been growing at sub five percent for the last several years, but mm. the road haulage volumes have been growing by between seven and ten percent. Mm. Uh, and I think what we're seeing there is part of the reonshoring of manufacturing away from Asian cheap labour markets into southern European cheap labour markets. You think that's a tangible trend that we can see now? Yeah, I think so. Okay, interesting. Okay, well that's um, that's global trade sorted. Let's uh, turn our attention to the minor issue of 2020. Um, <laughs> this is uh, it, it, it's almost impossible to uh, have a conversation in the shipping market at the moment without 2020 uh, leading the uh, conversation. Um, what, what's your view? Is the is the shipping industry uh, worryingly unprepared, or is uh, you know is is this just working out the way it was always going to work out? In a way? It's a very dynamic situation. It keeps changing day by day. You know the global uh, fuels mix mm. is altering uh, on a regular basis as the refiners try to adjust to the new regulations. Clearly, this regulation, regulation should have been pointed at the refiners, not at the consumers. It's a little bit like the government saying, you know, we're all going to switch to decaffeinated coffee. Now, you can still buy regular coffee, but you're not allowed to drink it. And we will be doing random breathalyzer checks to see if you've been drinking regular coffee. But you know what? The fine for drinking regular coffee is going to be so low that you may as well carry on drinking it, but just keep some decaf in the back seat in case anyone needs to check. Yes. That's kind of the situation we're in at the moment. So some people are going to sort of, you know, come off the caffeine, go through the three-day headache, incur the costs. Some people are, are going to say, no, I'm going to continue to drink my caffeinated coffee. What's really going to happen is it's going to cause long queues at the coffee shops because nobody really knows what's going to be available from which shop. Do I go to Costa or Starbucks or to Cafe Nero? Uh, and that's the big problem. It's going to cause disruption, you know, and supplies of the right recipe of caffeinated or decaffeinated or part caffeinated coffee are going to be available at the wrong places. So you're going to have to be moving that around. And that's actually going to be positive for the freight markets. Mm. There's going to be a big increase in demand for high-quality, low-sulfur sweet light crudes, such as American exports, which I expect to double or treble in the next few years. Wow. Okay. There's going to be a lot of movement of clean petroleum products for blending mm -hmm. um, because we don't have the right storage facilities in the right places. And most of the storage players are rapidly trying to buy up as much storage as they can. Yeah. And lots of ports around the world and terminals are trying to encourage more terminal construction, more storage construction in their terminals. And you've got some of the Chinese refiners buying up vast quantities of, of crude, certainly, especially West African spot crude. Freight rates for that have gone up significantly in the last few weeks because they know they can sit on that and store it and then export compliant blended fuels very easily next year. I think there will be, within a couple of years of the regulations coming in, there'll be sufficient blended compliant fuels available for everybody, but we just have to get over this two-year muddle. It's a little bit like the single hull phase out. Yeah. 
Yes, I mean, there does seem to be the uh, the general consensus. I was out in Singapore last week at SIBCON, a big bunker fest, and uh, it was interesting seeing the uh, fuel supply chain response because you're in a bubble within shipping and uh, it's very much been a question of we have concerns about quality and uh, availability of fuel and you know the refineries aren't stepping up to the plate. You start talking to the refineries and it's uh, it's an interesting picture. They're trying to assure the industry that you know, they are ready, that they've invested millions, if not billions in most cases, um, but ultimately, it's about them being able to anticipate the right demand. And right now, nobody's sure about price or, or, or demand. And uh, we had reports you know, this week that um, there's concern that the uh, availability of, of heavy sulfur fuel for, for, for those who were anticipating a, a higher intake of scrubbers are now thinking otherwise in terms of their plans. I mean, you know, the, 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 the scrubber take-up, although there has been a last-minute flurry, is only going to be a single-digit section of the fleet. Now, that's worrying if you are a refinery and you're set up to supply, you know, that grade of oil yep. to a, a market that just doesn't exist. As you said, tankage within the industry, the infrastructure is finite. They're not going to have fuel in their tanks if they can't sell it. Quite so. So, you know, um, lots of the oil traders, rather than the refiners, who carry a significant proportion of global bunker fuel inventory, don't like sitting on long-term inventory because they trade off low volume, off high volume numbers with very low margins. They don't want to sit on inventory that might potentially not be sold. No. And then the other danger there is that if you're making uh, quantities of 0.5% sulfur content fuel oil, uh, where's the sulfur going to go that isn't in that? Because there'll no longer be a 3.5% cap on the residual of the residual. Mm. So suddenly you could have much higher quantities of sulfur in the non-compliant fuel oil, and the scrubbers may not be able to handle that. Yeah. One of the interesting points that uh, Exxon made to me when I was speaking to them in uh, Singapore was things are getting complicated, and the, and the shipping industry needs to uh, regain some of its technical competence that it's lost. I mean, their point was actually... Of course, not our customers, they say. You know, our customers are very clever people and they know exactly what they're doing. But generally speaking, the shipping industry has lost some of its technical competence. And their point was that the idea of, of just basically going out and buying bunker fuel is no longer sufficient. You've got to be able to manage your fuel. You've got to know where your supply is coming from. You've got to have the technical competence to be able to match the fuel supply with the right engine and the ship. And you've got to be able to manage that on a ship-by-ship basis not just expect to just pump in a load of residual fuel and uh, you know anticipate that you will just carry on wherever you go. Uh, and that's interesting because um, that does feel like a step change in terms of how the shipping industry has to change its mentality in terms of how it's operating at the moment. Yeah, I think they might be slightly harsh on some ship owners who have worked <laughs> very hard through several downturns in the last decade to ensure that they have retained qualified engineers in employment, even though they might not have had sufficient work for them. You know, mm. A lot of the Greek owners actually kept people on the payroll, even though they didn't have work for them, because they know it's much harder to recruit those people back again once you've lost them, or those skills back again. But yes, so you now have ships at the dockyards, at the new building yards, where the, the owner's going back and saying, actually, I need 12 partitions in my bunker tank, because I don't know what I'm going to carry. Yes. So we need to think about this, you know, and how are we going to manage fuel switching and avoid thermal shock between the... Between the um, the different parts of the engine. Mm. What's going to happen if I if I have a, a scrubbed exhaust? Where am I going to put if it's a closed loop system? Where am I going to, I going to put the sludge? You know that comes out at the end. Who wants this sulfurous sludge? So there are lots of technical questions to be answered. This is true, but I think the industry is is trying its hardest. And on the other hand, I think most ship owners are now focusing. Uh, on their charge parties, and they're trying to make sure that they have sufficient coverage in their charge party 
that they don't become liable for a ship that they're not necessarily operating themselves, breaking any compliance limits. And, and that's really what's causing them headaches. Isn't it? I think that's right. I think, you know, broadly speaking, the, the bigger questions have been answered by most of the players. I mean, if you don't know what you're doing by now, you're probably you're too late. Um, but what we have now is a, is a last flurry of some of the detailed questions in terms of how this is going to play out. And, and there are still a lot of moving parts here, a lot of unknowns, both in terms of price, availability and quality, uh, concerns about um, uh, you know, fuel contamination coming through. You know, we've seen you know, a flurry of recent incidents that rather does expose, uh, in my opinion, the uh, fragility of the fuel supply chain at the moment. And that's only going to increase as you've got more fuel blends and more players coming into the market and more variables. Um, so there are concerns, obviously, but I think the other takeaway that I took from Singapore last week was while the detail is being ironed out this close to 2020, there's also a lot of people looking down the uh, barrel of 2050 as a decarbonisation target and slowly realising that this is going to be a minor hiccup compared to um, the strategic shift in the industry that's going to be required to uh, fully decarbonise an industry that is so reliant on, on, on fuel Regardless of whether you're talking about uh, you know, high sulfur, low sulfur, or even LNG, we're still talking about having to reduce the carbon output of shipping by 50% by 2050. That does not look very achievable from where we are in you know, this close to 2020. No, the technology is going to have to significantly alter over time, and the trade lanes are going to have to significantly alter over time. We're going to need to optimise the utilisation of our fleets. You know, On a voyage charter, it's like a taxi journey, you're paid on a round-trip basis, and most ship owners try and make money on the back wall. But your utilisation rate could effectively only be 50%, indeed, on you know the large cape sizes and VLCCs it is, because they, they go out late and they come back empty. Mm. Uh, that's going to have to change. We're going to have to optimise the utilisation of the ships, and that means that there's going to have to be a lot more digital involvement over time um, in order to make sure you've got the right ships lined up at the right time to meet the cargoes. So there's going to be a lot more... Internet of Things activity, there's going to be more automation to achieve that optimization. Mm. And the flip side of the optimization is you're going to have less volatility in the freight market. So you're going to have to build new types of ships that are very digitally connected throughout the whole of the value chain, uh, and you're going to have much less volatility in the freight market. And I think, unfortunately, the life of the ship owner is going to be less romantic as a consequence. A shame. But perhaps more efficient as a result. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, well, isn't Mark Williams, Managing Director of Shipping Strategy Limited? Thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you very much for having me.